Welcome back to Toxic Bliss, Surviving Narcissism, with me, Eamon Reese. I'm going to change tracks for this episode. I feel the need to explain a few things about my relationship with Eddie and our history together before continuing the main story. This will help things make more sense in the long run, but don't worry, this episode will be action-packed with drama, intrigue, spies, high-speed chases. Okay, maybe, well, you know, normal speed chases, but you get the point. There's a lot to tell, so we gotta jump right into it. I met Eddie in the early 90s. No, wait, you know, let me back up. I met his mother first, and this will be important, so let's start there. I was working in a magic store in Salem, Massachusetts. Although my religion isn't something I discuss in public, I will admit to the fact that I spent a few years exploring pagan-type things and was heavily involved in that particular community in Salem. It was fun and enlightening and different, and I've moved away from that now, but let's not get into that whole debate. Suffice to say, I was just exploring my beliefs and wanted to experience everything I could find. I was young and curious, okay? <laughs> I was working in this very cool little shop, and a woman had come in one day asking for some help with some court proceedings she was going through. I sold her some candle spell kits and showed her how to use them, and she went on her way. A few days later, she came back in, all excited. She ran behind the counter and gave me a hug. I guess she had won her court battle, and she was very grateful for my help. I was happy for her, but, well, I'll keep my thoughts about all of that to myself for now. She said she wanted to learn more about what we do, meaning us witchy folk, and I invited her to our open circle that we held every weekend right there in the shop. She said she'd be there and ask if she could bring someone else. Well, of course, I said, it's open to everyone. So she left, and I didn't give it much thought. I had been wanting to find a boyfriend for a while, and I had done a little magic of my own recently. I had taken some very magical stones and placed them in very hidden places around the shop, like taped to the backs of bookcases and things. No one could ever see them. It hadn't worked after having been set up for a couple of weeks, so I completely forgot about it. The weekend came, and we were all gathered in the shop preparing for our guests to arrive. I was behind the counter with a friend of mine, and we were ringing up sales and directing people downstairs to the meeting area. My friend, Marie, she was my age, and she was also looking for a new date. I tapped her on the shoulder and pointed to the door when I saw this guy walk in. Six-five, dark hair, wearing all black, a leather jacket, a black turtleneck, and good God was he handsome. Marie, Marie, look at him. That's your date. She looked up and said, nah, he's not my type. What? Are you crazy? Marie! She had to be crazy. I never thought for a second that someone that attractive would even glance in my direction, but Marie was a knockout. Yes, I had a few little teeny tiny self-esteem problems back then, but who doesn't? I returned to the register, and I didn't think much about Mr. Greek God Guy until he came up to the counter. How much for this, he asked, and he plopped down a tiny red stone on the glass. He had somehow found one of my magical, very well-hidden rocks from somewhere, and he wanted to buy it? <laughs> Marie about fell on the floor when she saw it. She couldn't hold it in, and she laughed right out loud and patted me on the back. Nice one. Good job. She congratulated me. 
I looked at the rock and I looked back at Eddie and back at the rock and Ron had walked over to me to see if we were all ready for the event. He was the owner of the store. Marie, still crying with laughter, pointed at the stone on the counter and Ron looked at it, looked at Eddie, looked at me and said, welcome to the family and walked away chuckling to himself. Poor Eddie, of course, had no idea what was going on and why we were all having this reaction to him wanting to buy this cute little red rock. I said, trying to explain without actually explaining, that, oh, there's no charge for that, you can just keep it. That was one of my personal stones that I had hidden for a spell I was working on. I'm just amazed that you found it, that's great. Oh, cool, you sure, he asked, and I nodded. He smiled and put the rock in his pocket. Are you here for the circle tonight, I asked him. Yeah, he said, my mom brought me, believe that. She said someone here helped her win her court case this weekend. She wanted to see what it was all about. Oh, yeah, I remember her. Is she here? And just like magic, she appeared at his side. I brought my son, she announced. Isn't he handsome? Eddie blushed. Mom, come on. I laughed and said, yes, he was very handsome. But let's head downstairs now. We're about to get started. I guess it's not every day that you head to an open circle at a store full of witches with your mom as your wingman. That poor guy, I thought as I laughed to myself. After the circle ended, we all gathered back upstairs for some communal chit-chat before we headed out to eat, as was customary after our weekend events. I was talking to Eddie and Marie was telling him that we were having a big Halloween party the next weekend at the house, and he should come. I chimed in and said, yeah, you should come. Bring any single friends you have. Eddie looked at me and flashed a killer smile and said, well, hey, I'm single. And I just laughed it off and said, oh, nice, well, bring your single friends too. He looked confused and looked at Marie and she just laughed, knowing that I totally missed the intention behind his statement. What? I asked, and they both just laughed at me. Anyway, I told Eddie that we were all heading out to a local restaurant for dinner and asked if he'd like to join us. Yeah, of course, he said. Lead the way. Before we made it to the door of the shop, his mother appeared. Where are you going? He explained, and she said, oh, I'll come too. Minolo, look at my soft hair. I can go out to eat now, too. I smiled and led the way out to the door. We walked two blocks down to the pier and over to the restaurant. I sat next to Eddie. He even held out the chair for me, and his mother sat on his other side. He ordered a Killian's Irish Red and asked if I wanted one. Nah, I said, I hate beer. Well, try this, he said. I think you'll like it. I said, all right, I'll try it. Two Killians, and he wanted a plate of raw oysters. Ugh. I made a face of disgust and said there was no way he was getting me to try those. Not a chance. At this point in my life, I was living with Ron and his partner. They owned the magic shop, and Ron and I were super close friends. He kept catching my eye across the table and making knowing, smirky faces at me. I was blushing like crazy, but I just blamed it on the beer. We had a nice dinner and chatted for a while, and then it came time to go home. Eddie wrote down my number and said he'd see me for the party that weekend. He kissed me on the cheek before he left. I swooned. It was a really long week. The day of the party had finally arrived, and Ron was a certified L'Oreal colorist from before he opened the shop in Salem, so he spent a good part of the day doing a color job on my hair. He gave me an asymmetrical cut and then colored the short side like yellow to orange to red to make it look like flames, and the rest of my head was a gorgeous deep fiery red. It looked phenomenal. I dressed in all black with the coolest witchy boot heels and a red satin cape. I was nervous, but I was excited and all that jazz. Eddie showed up on time, but his mother was with him. <laughs> I laughed and showed them in. 
He whispered to me that he had taken his own car here, and he was sure that she wouldn't stay too long. Oh, it's fine, I said, being very diplomatic about it all. The party was great and loud and full of good people, and we had a blast. Ron's son had lived on the second floor, and a lot of the partygoers there that were more in my age bracket settled up there eventually. Music, alcohol, video games, darts, you name it. Eddie and I settled on the sofa and started making out. I mean, what else do you do with a guy this good-looking at a party when you're 22 years old? We eventually made it downstairs to my room on the bottom floor. Most of the party people had gone home, and it was pretty quiet. Eddie's mom had left hours ago, and we were really alone for the first time. We were also really young, stupid, and drunk. So you can imagine what happens next. That's all I'm saying about that. We didn't really sleep that night, and I noticed the sky was starting to lighten. Come on, I said, let's go to the beach and watch the sunrise. And he agreed. But he didn't want to wear his Halloween costume down to the beach, understandably, so I lent him some sweats, which looked hilarious on his 6'5 frame, but he didn't care. The beach was only a block away, and we made it there long before the sun actually came up. This was our first morning together, and we would be together for the next seven years. Now, I do not advocate one-night stands. I never had one before or since, but I married him in the end, so I guess that made it okay or something. <laughs> anyway, we had started dating pretty heavily after the party. He worked as a bartender, and I worked at the shop in Salem, but every night he'd drive up to pick me up, and we'd go do whatever. His mom called me one day while I was at work, and she told me that I had to stop seeing her son. He was supposed to be working and going to college, and I couldn't be a distraction, so please stop dating him. Thanks. Bye. I called him at work right after that and told him that he'd never guess who just called me. But he guessed, and quite accurately, too. He said he'd talk to her when he got home from work, but not to worry about her. She was just overprotective. I could not fathom my mother interfering with some guy I was dating at my age. She wouldn't stop with her craziness about trying to get me to stop dating him. She even came into the store one day and offered me $5,000 if I'd leave him alone. I laughed and I told her to be gone before someone dropped a house on her. She missed the joke, but she did leave. He called me one night after work and said his mom was going mental and he was leaving. Could he stay with me? I asked Ron if that would be okay, and he said, yeah, he didn't care. So Eddie loaded up his stuff and moved in with me. Unfortunately, his mom, who needs a name, hmm, I know, let's call her Cruella. She knew where I lived since she'd been at the party. She didn't show up at the house right away, at least, but she kept calling both of us at work almost daily. She'd show up at the shop in Salem, and she'd show up at the bar where Eddie worked, and eventually at the house, just once. We decided to move. My sister owned a two-family house in Boston that had a lot of room in it, so we moved in there. It was perfect. Once in a while, when I wasn't working, I'd go out to Eddie's job and hang out for a little bit until he got off work. We were sharing his car, so I'd drop him off and pick him up whenever I had to go anywhere that required the use of the car. One afternoon, I pulled into the parking lot, and I saw several police cars there. Oh no, I wonder what happened, I thought. As soon as I got out of the car, two police officers walked toward me. And I looked at them like, what is this about? They asked me who I was, and I told them, and they said that they'd had a complaint from this lady, as they pointed to Cruella, and wanted to ask me some questions. They said that she claimed that I was poisoning her son with herbal tea, and she'd wanted me brought in for questioning while she took him to the ER for blood tests. 
this is a prank, right? I asked them, and they assured me that no, this was not a prank. Well, why don't we go talk to Eddie, the poisoned guy that's working right inside that bar right now while being poisoned. Let's go see what he thinks. One of the officers went inside and came back a moment later with Eddie in tow. He took one look at the scene and buried his face in his hands. The officers talked to Eddie and I on one side of the parking lot and then talked to Cruella on the other side, and then they came back to us, apologized, waited for Cruella to leave, and then they left themselves. Eddie had explained to them how his mother was, um, special, and that he was in no way being poisoned by me, and that he'd like them to ask her to leave us alone, which they had done with a warning about making nuisance calls to the police. Eddie's boss had come outside to ask if everything was okay, and we noticed that everyone in the bar was staring out the windows. You can't actually die from embarrassment, but Eddie was wishing that you could in that moment. We didn't hear from Cruella again for a few months. Poor Eddie. Let's pause now for a quick break, and then we'll get right back to it. Welcome back. The next time we heard from Cruella was early in December. She said that she'd like to have us over for Christmas Eve dinner. We were heading to Connecticut on Christmas morning to be with my mother, but said that we'd go to see her for a quick visit. She wanted to make things right and apologize. As it happens, I discovered on Christmas Eve in 1993 that I was pregnant. I was at work, and I was feeling just awful and nauseous and going to the bathroom every ten minutes. My co-worker went to the drugstore that was also in the mall on her break and bought me a pregnancy test kit. I thought she was insane. I just had a cold or something. But I took the test, and sure enough, I was pregnant. I was over the moon, and I thought, what an amazing Christmas present for Eddie. I told him as soon as we both got home, before we went to his mother's house. He was just as thrilled as I was, and we were both really feeling that Christmas spirit. Needless to say, we decided not to tell his mother. We ate dinner with her, and it was great. She made some fajitas, and Eddie taught me how to make their family recipe salsa verde. It was the best I've ever had. Cruella offered to let us sleep there that night so we could rest well before our trip to Connecticut. We agreed. We broke the bed in the guest room and laughed about it for the entire Christmas break. We headed to Connecticut the next morning and told my mom and family about the baby, and they were all happy. We were happy. Everything was great. Cruella left us alone for a while again. It was rather nice. Eddie had been estranged from his father for most of his life, and I urged him to look him up and call him. He said he didn't want to because his dad didn't want him, and he was afraid that if he called him, he'd just tell him to take a hike. It took a while, but I convinced him to try. He called. His dad flipped out, in a good way. They talked for about five straight hours on the phone, and his dad even promised to fly out for our wedding and couldn't wait to see him. Apparently, Cruella had been too crazy for Eddie's dad to stay in his life. There was stalking, nuisance lawsuits, you name it. Eddie's dad had to move to California to get away from her and never let her know where he'd gone. But he had sent letters and cards and presents for Eddie often, but Eddie never got any of them. They had a lot of catching up to do, and Eddie was just thrilled. Maggie was born in August of the next year, and in September we got married, and Eddie's dad was there. But Cruella was not. It was wonderful. We decided to move back to Connecticut now that we had Maggie. I didn't want to raise her in the city and so far from my mom. 
we got a little apartment and started that real-life thing. For some reason, Eddie had reached out to his mother, and I was furious. Nothing good will come of this, and now she has our phone number and she can find out where we live. Great! But Eddie was sure that she would be fine. He told her about Maggie, and she said she'd wanted nothing to do with that spawn of Satan, and Eddie needed to leave me and come home immediately. He just sighed and kept trying to explain that everything was good and his daughter was sweet and we were very happy. He would not even raise his voice to his mother, let alone tell her where to go. When he finally hung up, we fought, and we fought hard. How dare you let her call our daughter that? You didn't stick up for her. I was not having it. It was time to cut those apron strings, buddy boy. He promised he would, and we let things cool off between us. That year at Christmas, we got a box in the mail from Cruella. It had some really weird things in it for Maggie. A little fur coat, real fur, ew, some ugly doll, and just other assorted random crap. I threw it out. Eddie was mad, but I didn't care. We fought. I won. He carried the box to the dumpster himself. That spring, I had started a study group, and we met once a week at our apartment. We noticed that there was a white van parked down on the street in front of my apartment one night. It hadn't ever been there before, and that was a spot where Michael usually parked when he came over for our meetings. After that night, I noticed the white van was almost always somewhere within eyesight, whether it was across the street or in an adjacent lot, but I could always see it when I went outside. I went to the leasing office and asked if they could tell me if that was a new tenant, and they said no, they had no idea whose van that was. One day, I had walked up the road with Maggie to meet Eddie after he got off work. The van had followed us up there, and then followed us all as we walked back home. It parked across the street after we went inside. I called Michael and told him about this, and he came right over. He took down the plate number and went to go see his dad, who happened to be the chief of police in a neighboring town. Michael was a security guy, and I don't mean internet security, and he was very concerned about this van. They did a little digging and found out that it was owned by a private investigator who had been fired as a detective for some pretty shady stuff. Michael, who wasn't afraid of anything or anyone, went to the guy's house to ask him why he was following us, what was he doing, and oddly the guy told Michael everything. He was a P.I. hired by a woman named Cruella from Massachusetts. He was hired to follow us for a little while and get our routine down and where Eddie worked and all that other information. He told Michael that the goal was to get Eddie when he was out alone and take him to Massachusetts to his mother where she would be ready to fly them to Mexico. Michael informed him that he should keep far, far, far away from us and that he'd be watching him closely. We filed a bunch of reports and paperwork with Michael's dad, so we'd have a record of all this if anything should happen. We never saw that van again. However, Michael called me about a week later. That guy, the private investigator, he had been in a fatal accident on the highway. He had a heart attack while he was driving and died. Talk about freaky. Remember this story because it's going to come up later. Cruella tended to go silent for about six months at a time but then she'd pop up again with random weirdness. Every once in a while, the police would come to our door to file a report about harassing phone calls we were allegedly making to her. We'd explain the situation and they'd leave. But she did this so often, 
that eventually they asked us to consider pressing charges on her for nuisance complaints. There were no phone calls to her, of course, but she would just make it up and then call the police. She'd call once in a while, too, and Eddie would talk to her. She would just berate him for a solid hour and threaten him with all sorts of nonsense. But he'd never raise his voice to her, and we'd fight about it every time she called. She'd file lawsuits against us, civil suits, small claim suits, anything she could think of, to just get our attention or something. The cases never went anywhere, of course, but we always had to spend time and money answering them and dealing with it. He refused to seek a restraining order on her or anything else, so it became a constant part of our lives. Eventually, I had just had enough, and that was one of the main reasons our relationship ended. After we had separated, it was a few years before the divorce papers turned up on my doorstep. I read them in a fit of hysterics, mixed with furious rage. She filled the papers out, and the stuff that was in there, holy smokes, she said that Maggie wasn't Eddie's daughter because she didn't have this particular birthmark that everyone in their line had. She said that Eddie needed special protection from the court because I was an evil witch, and they would seek a restraining order against me to stop me from doing black magic against her because I had done a spell once and killed a private investigator by giving him a magical heart attack. I'm not kidding. She really said that in the court documents. I had to actually go to a hearing about this restraining order nonsense. The judge read the complaint and looked at me like, is this serious? And I said, your honor, if I could do that, do you really think we'd be sitting here today? He laughed. I laughed. Case dismissed. Now, that may not have been the smartest thing to say in open court, but the absurdity of the claim was so astounding that the judge didn't seem to mind it. I had a lawyer deal with the rest of the divorce settlement, and it was over and done with, finally. Eddie didn't try to contact Maggie for years. His mother wouldn't let him. He had called me once during all this time to explain that his mom would kick him out if she thought he was calling me, so he had to go dark. I thought about taking him to court for child support and all of that, but I figured it was easier if he was just not involved in my life at all. I would never have stopped him from talking with Maggie, but he was the one who would have to make that call, and he chose not to. You would think this would have been the end of things, but no. Years later, Eddie contacted me. He said that he had remarried and was with a great woman and that he wanted to see Maggie. He asked if I would consider flying her to Florida to stay with him for a week over the summer. Now, of course I didn't want to do that. He hadn't seen her in years, and I was just going to put this little kid on a plane by herself and fly her across the country to see him? Don't be stupid. But we talked and we talked and we talked about it for weeks. He put my mind at ease. I talked to his new wife, and she also put my mind at ease. He swore that Cruella would be nowhere around, and it would be fine. I eventually caved because I wanted to do what was right for Maggie, and I never wanted her to blame me for not letting her see him. He paid for the plane ticket, and she went. I was terrified, and I cried for days. I made sure I talked to her at least once a day and that she was okay. She seemed happy and said she was having a great time. I felt a little better, but I was still counting the hours until she was home with me again. Before she got home, though, there was a knock at my door one day. It was the Department of Children and Family Services. They had gotten a report from Cruella in Florida. She had stated in the claim that I was neglecting Maggie, and they wanted to keep her there in Florida. I almost vomited on the spot. The caseworker was lovely, though, and 
She calmed me down, and we sat and had a very long talk. I had showed her all of the legal papers from my history with Cruella, all the lawsuits, the restraining orders, the divorce papers, and I also gave her my lawyer's number, since he had dealt with her craziness for years. And she looked around my home and saw that everything was in order, and it indeed looked like Maggie was very loved. She had lots of toys, a closet full of clothes, movies, games, all the things a girl her age should have. After our long conversation, which even included a speakerphone call with my mother, the caseworker told me that I had a strong case to show a malicious false report, which could mean an arrest for Eddie and his stupid mother. I thought about it long and hard, but I said to the caseworker that this woman was crazy. She'd seen the documentation. If I did that and had them arrested, she'd probably do something much worse in return. And the caseworker agreed that that was probably true. What I wanted was help to get my daughter returned to me. The divorce proceedings granted me full custody of Maggie, not even visitation with Eddie, so he had no right to keep her there. The caseworker would help with that. She had local law enforcement in Florida meet with the caseworker there who had taken the report and get Maggie from Eddie's place to make sure she got on the plane back home that night. Eddie called me the next day to make sure Maggie made it back all right. Oh, did I ever scream at him. I have never yelled at anyone the way I did that day. It's one thing to have a crazy mother mess with us for so many years, but to try to take my child away from me? He was now at the very top of my shit list, and he would be there for the foreseeable future. It took quite a few years for Eddie and I to mend our relationship enough so that he could be part of Maggie's life. He had even started to pay a little child support, not at all near what he would have been required if I had taken him to court, but it was something, and he was pretty good about not missing payments. I had eventually let him fly Maggie to Florida again, and everything was fine. She would go visit him every summer for quite a few years. Eddie and his wife eventually divorced, though, for the same reasons that he and I did. Both Cruella and her insanity, and the fact that Eddie just never wanted to work. It had been about ten years since Eddie moved out from the apartment in Florida with Mike and I at that time, and he had just gone to college the whole time. First he was going to be a computer specialist and spent years pursuing a degree in that. He got in a good job, but lost it really quickly. Then he went to study nursing and had just about completed the program, but changed his mind at the end. So then he decided to become a psychologist and spent more years in college doing that. On and on this went. He was always just about to get a really good job and make lots of money and take care of everyone. It just never happened. Not only had he not been working regularly during all those years, but he had amassed a small fortune's worth of student loans on top of it. Meanwhile, his wife worked to support them, even going back to work mere weeks after having her first child. She finally reached the point that I did with him, and though she loved him as much as I did, she just had to leave. I didn't blame her for that at all, but I did feel bad for Eddie. He really was a sweet guy, but he just couldn't ever seem to grow up. Eddie and I kept in touch, and he told me that he had ended up living with his mother again. He was 47 at the time. We didn't talk much, but he'd call on important days like Maggie's birthday and Christmas and that sort of thing. But just last summer, Maggie had gotten very sick and she was hospitalized for weeks. I was freaking out, and I called Eddie and told him he needed to come here to be with her. He, of course, didn't have any money to travel, so we got him a plane ticket and a hotel because... We have cats, and he's allergic to them. Here's a side note. 
funny story about that. When he was very little and his parents had split, Cruella would use medical emergencies as a way to get Eddie's father to come see them. Eddie suddenly developed asthma and severe allergies, out of the blue, and he would routinely end up in the ER for breathing treatments and so forth. He continued with this learned behavior throughout his life. If he'd get bored of his job, or we were facing a financially stressful situation, he would end up in the ER for breathing treatments. He lost more than a few jobs over this, and we had constant money problems because of it. One day, someone had given us a couch, and we had moved it into the apartment, and it was great. We used it for about five or six days before Eddie noticed a cat hair on it. Oh my god, a cat hair! Ah! Deathly allergic! And within an hour, he had to go to the ER for a treatment. Really. Funny how it didn't bother you until you knew that there was a cat hair there. He went to work the day after, and I promised I'd shampoo the couch to get rid of the cat hair. He came home and never had another problem with it. I never shampooed the sofa. He was fine. But he had learned that needing attention, or to avoid something stressful, these self-induced asthma attacks were a great ploy. Now, the symptoms were very real. His O2 saturation would be down in the low 80s by the time we'd get to the ER. But the trigger for them was completely psychological. This was a psychosomatic disorder, and he has always refused to treat that side of things. Anyway, back to our story. So, Eddie came up here to see Maggie while she was in the hospital. The trip had cost us about $3,000, all told, between his hotel, food, plane. I even took him to get some new sneakers because he pointed out to me on several occasions, that his shoes had holes in them and the sole was falling off. Liam wasn't too thrilled about how expensive Eddie was to have around, but he didn't complain about it either. Maggie needed us all there, and we were united for her. Maggie was released, and we took her home and got her settled. Eddie went back to his mother's house in Florida. A month later, though, Maggie ended up back in the hospital, but this time she would need surgery. I called Eddie and asked him to come back up here. He wanted to, but again, he had no money to make the trip. I said, don't worry, we'll cover your hotel and food, but could you get here yourself? Maybe just drive? He talked to his mother, who agreed to cover his gas to get here, but she was broke, you know. Yeah, right. She gave him $200, which for her was still pretty amazing in and of itself. We paid for the rest of the trip. Before he was heading home, I asked him if he had enough to get there, and he said he was going to have to call his mom. So he called her while I was sitting there with him, so we would know if he was all set before he left. She pulled a typical Cruella. But I've already given you money. What did you spend it on? It's like a 24-hour drive from Florida to where we are in Texas. $200 didn't even cover the first half of the trip. He explained that to her and said that he still needed to get back home. Well, she said, fine, go ahead and PayPal yourself some money for my account. But when you do, I'm going to call the police and tell them that that woman, meaning me, is extorting money from me, and I'll have her arrested. Wait, what did she just say? Are you kidding me right now? After a very long and heated conversation about Eddie letting his mother get away with this garbage again, Liam and I decided that it was best to just give him what he needed to get home and send him on his merry way. Enough was more than enough. I had spent many years free of Cruella and her craziness, and I wanted to keep it that way. His second trip to Texas cost us almost as much as the first. Now, don't get me wrong, 
There was no limit on how much money we would have spent to get Maggie anything she needed or wanted as she went through this difficult situation. And she had wanted her dad. But there is a deep undercurrent of resentment that can't be overlooked. He is as much her parent as I am. Why hadn't he ever felt any real responsibility for her, financially or otherwise? Why was it all on me? Ugh. Anyway, moving on. That brings us to just last summer. Eddie had gone home, Maggie came home from the hospital, and although she'd have a long convalescence at home, at least she was home and she would be all right. Eddie was pretty good about keeping in touch with her. During one of his visits, Liam and I had talked to him about getting out of his mother's house. We had offered to secure an apartment for him in Texas, and even hook him up with a job. All of this with the caveat that we would not be paying his rent or expenses. He'd have to work and deal with that himself, like a big boy. And if he messed up, it was all on him to deal with. There would be no bailouts or safety nets. It was time to live like an adult. He said he'd think about it. I thought he was crazy. Why would you turn down something like that, all the while crying about how evil your mother is and how badly you want to get out? Yeah, something wasn't right there. A few months later, he called me out of the blue and was ranting and raving about his mother, and he absolutely needed to get out of her house. He'd finally had enough. I said, good for you. What can I do to help you? Well, he started. I figured if you and Liam were still willing to help me move out, then I could use some cash. Well, where did you want to move to, I asked. He said he wanted to stay in Florida because of his child there, so he could be close to her. I didn't buy that for a second, and I told him so. Like, you didn't feel the need to stay close to Maggie when you moved out from us, so what's really going on, Eddie? This was strange. One thing I would have said about Eddie was that he was an honest and loyal and loving and true person. The entire duration of our relationship, I had never known him to be a liar or a manipulator, at all. In fact, he was a little too honest about some things, even. The thought that he would be hiding something big from me now seemed insane. Nah, he said. I mean, I do have a girlfriend, but she's overseas right now, so that's neither here nor there. Oh, okay, I said. So you want to get an apartment in Florida? How much do you think it'll be? Well, he paused for a moment. I was thinking that 15000 would cover it. What? I spit my Diet Coke straight into the next county. 15000 for a down payment on an apartment? Where the F are you moving to? He was on crack. I was sure of it. That's it. It just had to be crack. Ha ha ha. Nowhere special, he said, but first and last month's rent, and I need some furniture and all this stuff. Dude! I yelled. You can get a cheap one-bedroom or a studio apartment. You're a single guy. You get furniture at yard sales or consignment stores. When I moved to Texas, I had two kids and a mattress. You can cope. Jesus wept. I don't know what to do. That just sounded right in my head, he tried to explain. Ugh, I'm so confused. Ugh, all right, Eddie, here's what we do. Get in your car, pack up your important stuff from your mom's house, and drive up here to Texas. I'll PayPal you gas money, and you just get yourself here, and then we'll figure it out, okay? Come stay with us for a while, have a break, come here where you can have a safe place to rest and think about it and make a plan. He agreed. It sounded like a good idea. He would leave that night. I PayPal'd him $350, figured that would be enough for gas, food, and probably a hotel stay during the drive. We'd deal with the rest when he got here. I called Liam at work and told him what was going on. 
He was less than pleased, but if Eddie was finally getting away from that crazy person, it was all good. Eddie called me during his breaks, which were frequent. I asked him about this girlfriend, and, and he told me that she was a military contractor and was working overseas in Turkey. But she was a millionaire. Her dad had died, and she was the heir to his cruise ship fortune. Well, why didn't he ask her for $15,000 for an apartment? He said that she would take care of everything as soon as she got back to Florida, but she couldn't access her money overseas because she had to have her lawyer get it out of escrow or some such thing. We'd talk more about it when he stopped for his next break. Hmm. I explained all of this to Liam, who looked at me like I had also just discovered the joys of recreational narcotics. He did a quick Google and showed me the results. This was a well-known scam. Even the Department of Defense website has information about it. People posing as military or military contractors overseas with almost the exact same story that Eddie told me. Oh, no, I thought. Oh, no, 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 no. When Eddie called back, I had some more pertinent questions for him about his girlfriend. First, had he ever sent her an iTunes card? Well, yeah, a few times, he said, curious as how I knew that and why it mattered. All right, I explained that to him, and I said, All right, Eddie, tell me honestly, have you ever sent her any other money, and tell me the truth? After a bit of prodding, he admitted that he had refinanced his car to get a $6,000 loan and sent it to her. She needed it to pay for her lawyer so she could get her money and get an airplane ticket back to Florida. Oh, Eddie. What? he asked me. I read him the information from the DOD website and explained that he had been scammed, hardcore, and this was a big problem. He didn't want to believe it at first, but I sent him links to the relevant articles and he read them. He called back a few hours later, in tears. I asked him a question as gently as I could. Eddie? What did you want that $15,000 for, really? Well, I needed to send it to her so she could get home, he admitted. The six k wasn't enough, apparently, but she had so much money, so he had been sure that she'd pay us all back and then some as soon as she got here. I sighed deeply. Find yourself a hotel for the night and call me when you get settled. I need to talk to Liam about this. We hung up, and Liam leapt right in. When he calls back, you tell him to take his sorry ass straight back to Florida and go live with his mom. He's not welcome here, and I will not be paying for his lies. He's done. He's burnt his bridges with us. We were his last safe bastion, and he ruined it. I don't care. He is done. Now, Liam was right, of course. It was very hard for me to be in that same headspace, as I did care very much about Eddie, and I had always felt a rather maternal need to protect him and care for him. But... He had been willing to take $15,000 out of our bank account to send to some mysterious woman he met on the internet that he'd never even seen in person. $15,000 from the money that was taking care of our sick daughter, Maggie, who had already racked up nearly $200,000 in medical bills. The level of selfishness and idiocy floored me. Any nurturing maternal feelings I had had for Eddie melted away right before my eyes, and the anger set in. I sent him a text explaining that he needed to go back to Florida and that we were just done. I didn't want to call him right then because I didn't feel like waking the neighbors with the screaming that would ensue. 
He replied that he understood, he was very sorry, and he'd send me back any money left over when he got back to Florida. A day later, he sent me back $140 and apologized again. Poor Eddie. As mad as I was, I still felt bad for him. This is what 48 years with a narcissistic parent can do to a person. There was nothing I could do to help him. We haven't really talked much since then, though he did call on Father's Day to talk to Maggie, which is a little odd in its own right. And that is the story of Cruella, and when we get back to the events in the story with Mike in the next episode, it'll make a lot more sense. Phew, that was a long one. Next time, we're going to go back to Florida, and Mike, and Tina, and all of that super fun stuff. Until then, thanks for listening, and take care. People ask me what my secret is, I 